0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Hello, Truth Podcast listeners. This is Chris Starin, the host of the show, We'll be getting to the episode in just a moment, but first, the results of our Fundamentalism Definition Contest. I put a call out over social media to see what your definitions are of Christian fundamentalism, and several of you wrote in, The prize is a copy of Fundamentalism and American Culture by George Marsden, which is one of the books that has been a big resource for this season. So thanks to everybody who submitted their definition, and to my Patreon supporters who give a little each month, and also were able to vote on their favorites. So the winner of the book, chosen by Patreon supporters, is Michelle Rayburn. And Michelle's definition of Christian fundamentalism is, It's a religious framework that puts prescripts over people, rules over relationships, and tradition over transformation. Thanks, Michelle, for your definition. We'll be sending her a copy of the book. And thanks to everybody who supports this show. It's really only about 2% of the listeners who give anything to help out, and it really makes a big difference. So thanks for doing that. If you're interested in helping yourself, visit trucepodcast.com donate. Okay, here's the episode. It's one of my favorites that I've ever done, and I hope you enjoy it. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism. It can stand on its own, but it will make a lot more sense if you go back to the beginning of season five or even just one episode to our discussion on premillennialism. Okay, here's the show.
2: The smoke and ash from the explosion were immediately fatal. As many as 10,000 people perished at once many more in the months to come as crops failed. The top of the mountain seemed to just blow off. This was the island of Sumbawa in Indonesia, April 1815. Tsunamis radiated from the island. 12 cubic miles of debris and dust shot into the atmosphere. The eruption of Mount Tambora affected the weather across the Northern Hemisphere accounting in part for the chilly conditions of the next year. In Ireland, it rained non-stop for six weeks, causing a potato famine and the spread of typhus. In June of 1816, people in Virginia had so much snow, they were able to ride their sleighs. Fourth of July celebrations were held indoors because of the unseasonable cold. It must have seemed to people back then that the world was coming to an end at least in the Northern Hemisphere. It didn't seem to affect the Southern one. 1816 earned the nickname, the year without a summer. Disease was rampant. Two months before the volcano did its thing, Napoleon Bonaparte escaped his island prison of Elba to become emperor of France once again. And just like that, Europe was at war. Is it any wonder that some Christians thought the end of the world was near? Events like the eruption of Tambora, the French Revolution, and rapid modernization created a sense of immediacy in those looking for Jesus to return. They longed to decode when and how, to use the Bible to make sense of history, to put the whole thing in neat little boxes, hoping to understand the seemingly endless chaos. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm B.T. Stevenson. This is Truce.
1: And now it's back to me, the normal host, Chris Starin. In this special episode of Truce, you're going to hear a bunch of different people, because today... We're talking about dispensationalism. It's a big word, but don't panic, we'll explain it. Essentially, it's the idea that God deals with humanity in different ways throughout human history. It's a popular concept in fundamentalism and in evangelicalism, though not universally accepted. So, if the theory is that God deals with humanity differently depending on the era— I'm dealing with you in different ways throughout the show as we go from act to act. Up first, it's me, with a big question. Do we exist? In the early 2000s, my twin brother and I visited a museum in Los Angeles, right off the Hollywood Walk of Fame. We struck up a conversation with one of the docents. You know, those guys standing around at museums warning you not to touch anything. Somehow, the docent let it slip that he believed we were actually living in The Matrix. Now, you remember The Matrix, of course. The film that claimed that all the stuff we see and feel and smell may not be real. They only exist in our minds. He actually believed that. Now, this philosophy was not new to the Matrix. It started hundreds of years ago, and one proponent was David Hume, an atheist philosopher from the 1700s. His work had a big impact on people like Adam Smith, founder of modern capitalism, and even Charles Darwin. Hume will come up again in a later episode he and others in the 1700s asked some pretty ethereal questions. Do we exist? Do we perceive the world as it really is? As you can imagine, there was a strong reaction to this new philosophy. The reaction was called common sense realism.
3: The common sense philosophy, which was developed during the 1700s, about the time of the American Revolution, argued that, you can, that humans can trust their reason. That human reason is reliable. This
1: is George Marsden. He's the author of Fundamentalism and American Culture and is a professor emeritus from Notre Dame and professor from Calvin Theological Seminary. Again, common sense realism went against this philosophy where people said we don't really exist, an idea held by folks like Hume. Common sense realism said we can trust our senses.
3: So at the time of the American Revolution, when Uh, Jefferson says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that's a typical common sense kind of argument. It just things that everyone has to believe, like you have the right to life or you have the right to freedom. Those are inbuilt by the creator.
1: Simply put, we don't exist in the matrix. We can trust our senses, our eyesight, touch, taste, smell, our ears in order to understand the world around us. This got tied into the ideas of Francis Bacon from the early 1600s about the importance of evidence in science. Not only can we trust our senses, but we can also use them to gather data and learn about our world. This came about in an age when people were really into scientific discovery. And once people discovered stuff, it was fashionable to put those things in tidy little boxes. What about that bird? (laughs) It belongs in a specific genus and species. Put it in a box. This flower, this tree, put it in a box. Let's give everything a category so we can better understand it. Put it in a box.
4: Thanks, Chris. I'll take it from here. Go for it. So when it came to understanding the Bible, theologians carried over these ideas. Maybe by chopping scriptures into digestible pieces, we can better understand the meaning of this complicated text. With the renewed interest in prophecy after the French Revolution and the bizarre events in the Northern Hemisphere in the early 1800s, like Mount Tambora, people thought the world was about to end, so they turned to the Bible looking for clues. Which brings us back to our big word for the episode, dispensationalism. It's not as difficult as it sounds. A dispensation is basically an era, a period of time in which God acts in a certain way. People have tried to break the Bible into dispensations for a long time. Guys like Justin Martyr in the 100s AD, here are his dispensations.
1: Enoch through Noah, Abraham, Moses, Christ, and the millennium.
4: Irenaeus had his
1: own. Adam through Noah, Noah through Moses, Moses through Christ, and the millennium.
4: A bunch of people tried to break the Bible up into different eras.
1: Put it in a box.
4: But they didn't stop there. They wanted to take the spirit of scientific inquiry and use it to understand the future, too. I mean, if you thought the world was going to end at any moment, wouldn't you want to know when? Of course. But it turns out that predicting the end times is really hard to do, because the books of Daniel and Revelation, the two big hitters when it comes to end-time prophecies, leave us with a lot of questions. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word day, it can be confusing. Does a biblical day mean a literal day or could it also mean year? Does a month mean 30 days or can it mean 30 years? Dispensationalism tries to answer these questions definitively.
1: Put it in a box.
4: Let's recap those two functions of dispensationalism. First, it says that God deals with humanity in different ways, depending on which dispensation we're in. Second, It takes the dates and times listed in end times prophecies and lays them over history, trying to piece together what events already happened and which are in the future. Got it?
5: Good, because I want to tell you how this idea came to be, and soon we'll explain how dispensationalism became a building block of Christian fundamentalism. First, the history. The story behind modern dispensationalism is fascinating. After the French Revolution, some people searched the scriptures looking for the events of their day. Was Napoleon in there? Mount Tambora? Were the floods and the plagues? Whether they were right or not, I'll leave it to you. One of the major focuses in end times prophecy is the idea that the Jews will return to Israel. There was a renewal of this idea in the early 1800s. One champion of it was a guy named Lewis Way. Lewis was a rich dude, and while visiting in Devonshire, England, he heard about a peculiar stand of trees. This particular bunch was not to be cut down until the Jews were restored to Palestine. A weird command, but there it was. Way wanted to know more. What groups were working to restore Jews to Palestine? He came in contact with the London Society for Promoting Christianity Among the Jews in 1815, or the Jews Society, which, I don't know, doesn't sound right. It's best known not for its evangelism to Jewish people, but spreading the word about Zionism.
1: And this is Chris really quick. Uh, Zionism is the pro-Israel movement. It's people who wanted to reestablish a nation for the Jewish people in Palestine. Okay, back to Jackie.
5: By the way, we'll be tracking evangelical ideas about the Jewish people for the next few months, so tuck this moment away in your brain. Needless to say, we've had a weird relationship with the Jewish people. Way and the Evangelism Society for Jews participated in a series of conferences in the late 1820s. Kind of a strict conference with lots of rules. Here's an actor reading just a few of their conclusions.
2: Conclusion number one. This dispensation, or age, will not end insensibly, but cataclysmically in judgment and destruction of the church, in the same manner in which the Jewish dispensation ended.
5: Right away you see that premillennialist bent, that history is trending downward, and it's all going to come to a terrible end.
2: Conclusion number two, the Jews will be restored to Palestine during the time of judgment.
5: This one seems like a no-brainer based on what we know about the group.
2: Conclusion number three. The 1260 years of Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 ought to be measured from the reign of Justinian to the French Revolution.
5: This is huge. Did you catch it? Both Daniel and Revelation mention this period of time. Some folks see it as 1260 actual years, The conference decided that that period occurred at a specific time in the past, from the reign of Justinian to the French Revolution. Remember how you thought Chris went on too long about the French Revolution in our last episode? This is why. Because dispensationalists would soon see that event as the end of this biblical era, a sign of the end times. After these conferences with their tidy little conclusions, one guy in particular took all of these ideas and some of his own and really solidified the belief system. John Nelson Darby.
1: Thanks for your help. I'm going to get back in the saddle for a little while if that's all right.
5: Take it away. (laughs) How do you want me to say it? That's the hardest line. (laughs) It's three words. Take it away. Take it away. Or go for it. Go for it. (laughs) Yeah, what you I think
1: so. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a good friend for doing this. No, I'm happy to help you. I think it's
5: awesome. It's kind of fun.
1: John Nelson Darby is an interesting figure. He, like many people in the season, defies easy description. He wasn't the inventor of dispensationalism. That would be a nice tidy little box to put this episode in. Put it in a box. Darby took a lot of existing ideas, added his own spin, packaged them, and went on tour to share his neatly arranged system. The system we now call dispensationalism is his way of putting things in a box. Like a biologist studying plant species, dispensationalists attempt to put the Bible into tidy categories. And as we said earlier, this system would become a foundational element of the fundamentalism we see today. We'll discuss John Nelson Darby and the end of the world right after this message.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. 9 Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind the scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. 9 Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com/audio to learn more.
1: John Nelson Darby He left the Church of Ireland because they wanted him to swear an oath to the crown. He didn't like that because he saw that as diminishing the role of God. Darby was a member of a separatist group, the Plymouth Brethren, a sect that, at the time, didn't have a huge following. Darby's dispensationalism, this collection of ideas waiting for someone to systematize them, was based on a literal interpretation of Scripture. Here again is George Marsden.
3: It said that human history is divided into seven dispensations.
1: Remember, a dispensation is a fancy word for an era. In each era, according to dispensationalists, God deals with humanity in a different way. Again, not every Christian believes it. Instead, some of us believe that God is consistent throughout history.
3: And In each era, humans are put to a test by God. In each era, they fail. So the first era is in Eden.
1: The story of Adam and Eve from Genesis, when the first two people ever are tempted, eat of the forbidden fruit, and break their deal with God.
3: And Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden.
1: A big, huge, devastating event. The second era of dispensationalism ends with a flood, when God was so angry with humanity that he destroyed most of it except for Noah and his family. Again, a cataclysmic event.
3: Third era ends with the Tower of Babel.
1: The people messed up and cataclysm. This goes on and on and on, putting different parts of the Bible into little boxes. So where do dispensationalists think we are today?
3: We're in the sixth era.
1: Darby said that we are in the sixth dispensation, the one known as the era of the church, which, according to him, started in the book of Acts and goes up through now. But remember that pattern? Each dispensation ends in destruction. Dispensationalists believe that our current era has to end in cataclysm in order for the next dispensation to come.
3: That fits right in with all sorts of problems in modern civilization, industrialization, urbanization, new ideas like Darwinism, biblical criticism, and and all sorts of skeptical views that are are around. Uh, The world is getting worse and worse, and any moment, Jesus is going to return.
2: That gives dispensationalism a dark view of human history everything eventually leads to destruction. But that's not where the story ends. Darby also tied in some of the concepts we covered earlier in the Bible conferences, like a focus on the Jewish people. He too believed that the Jewish people would one day return to Palestine. This idea, by the way, comes from Matthew 24, 32-33.
1: In a chapter when Jesus talks about the end, it goes like this. Now, learn a parable of the fig tree, When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. It doesn't
4: exactly scream Jews returning to Palestine, but that is how people, even before Darby, interpreted the passage. This is where Darby got a little innovative. He said that the current dispensation, the church, the one we're in now, does not appear in the Jewish prophecies. God has two different plans, one for Jews and one for Christians. The Jewish people had their covenants with God, and then God turned his attention to non-Jews, an event they say was unforeseen in the Old Testament. Essentially, God hit pause on his prophetic stopwatch. This is seen as a parenthesis. Then Jesus will return after a cataclysmic event, the tribulation. We've heard a lot about this dark end-of-the-world scenario. Modern films and young adult novels are obsessed with it. Darby, though, added a special twist. Darby was adamant that Christians would be spared from this terrible time, the
3: rapture. The return of Jesus is preceded by what's called the secret rapture, where the saints are caught up into heaven.
4: If you've read the Left Behind books, then this is familiar to you. It's the idea that one moment Christians will be going about their business when, poof! They are suddenly taken from earth, followed by seven truly terrible years for everyone who is left. This, according to one scholar, was one of Darby's great theological innovations. The Left Behind series wouldn't have happened if not for this guy. That's right. You have John Nelson Darby to thank for a Nicolas Cage movie. (laughs) It's worth noting that dispensationalists are not in total agreement, like how many dispensations there are or if any of these events happened yet or if they're in the future. Also, since God operates differently in different dispensations, a minority of dispensationalists believe that what was taught in a previous era doesn't apply to us today. So, since Jesus' death and resurrection marks the end of the last era, this minority does not believe we're under, say, the Sermon on the Mount, meaning they don't think they are responsible for the commands like, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor as yourself, or love your enemies. Again, before you send us comments about this, let me say once more that this is the opinion of a minority of dispensationalists. Darby took
2: his ideas on the road. He visited the U.S. and Canada seven times between 1862 and 1877, spending a total of seven years on North America, where he ran into a few obstacles. Darby was one of those guys who thought that his denomination had it all figured out, and the remaining in any other denomination was a big mistake. You know these guys, right? He was critiqued by his contemporaries for stealing people from other churches. His teachings caught on mostly in cities like Chicago, St. Louis, New York, and Boston, but he never pulled that many to his denomination, which he saw as a major failure after his last trip to the U.S. Dispensationalism played a huge role in the creation of fundamentalism. Why is that? Well, Chris has said in the last episode that premillennialism is a view that the world is going to get worse and worse as time goes on, morals will decay. There will be dramatic events and wars. Things are going to get nasty. Dispensationalism added two ideas that are really important. First, not only is the world going to end, but Christians won't be here to see it. That's the secret rapture George Marsden mentioned. The rapture has a huge impact on the way some Christians interact with everything, from the environment to how hard we try to improve the course of human history. If we're not going to be here for the worst moment ever, what do we care if it happens? It creates an us-and-them vision of the last days, those who will peace out before it happens, and those who are stuck with the judgment of God. The second novel idea of dispensationalism is the Christian church is going to get worse as well. Before the end of the world, the church is going to become apostate, Whereas your garden-variety premillennialist is watching the newspaper and television for signs, a dispensationalist is reading the church bulletin. This philosophy takes that dark view of history and turns it inward. That expectation of apostasy means that dispensationalists maintain a base level of suspicion, a doubting glare toward not just other denominations, but other Christians, looking
1: for signs of weakness. It's tough to feel unified with other Christians if you're pretty sure they're going to backslide at some point. That prejudgment would later grow into a key part of fundamentalism, a sense that, if not for us, this whole thing would blow up and cover the world in darkness. It's definitely great to have insight and study the Bible, but there's also danger in putting everything in a little box. It can, under the right circumstances, discount the mysteries of God. I mean, the Bible praises the Bereans for studying God's word, but also contains a warning about going too far.
4: Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up.
1: It's a good message for us to consider as we go through this series. It's great to learn about where we came from, to know more about fundamentalism, the problems with taking logical ideas to extremes. But we too can grow haughty in our knowledge or gawk at the struggles of our neighbors rather than feel love for them. We can criticize the church and forget that we're commanded to love it, blemishes and all. As we go forward, regardless of our denominational leanings, let's try to both learn and love to remain humble, and to look out for our neighbors and enemies. Okay, we've built the foundation for fundamentalism. An interest in the end times, a feeling that history is sliding towards cataclysm, focus on the Jews, an us-and-them attitude, a sense that true believers will be saved from the worst of the worst. In our next episode, we'll set the stage, What was the United States like when dispensationalism and premillennialism started their slow takeover? And we'll really begin to understand the guy known as Mr. Fundamentalist, William Jennings Bryan. As this fundamentalism thing goes from a tiny minority to exploding like Mount Tambora and filling the world with its influence. Stay tuned. Special thanks to, you know what? My friends have been super helpful, so I'll let them do the credits.
2: Special thanks to George Marsden. He's the author of Fundamentalism and American Culture. It's the book on fundamentalism that is quoted by basically every other book on the subject. Others include The Roots of Fundamentalism by Ernest Sandine, The Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald, and American Apocalypse
4: by Matthew Sutton, just to name a few. You can find a full list of resources used in this episode on the website at trucepodcast.com. While you're there, you can find
1: photos, links, and downloads related to the show. Truce is listener-supported. Only about 2% of the people who download the show give anything at all to help. This project, as you may have sensed, is way different from most Christian podcasts. Each episode takes days, if not weeks, to produce lots of books, time, and equipment. Your gift helps send a message
2: that Christian media can be both educational and entertaining. If you want to be a part of raising the bar on Christian media, visit trucepodcast.com
1: slash donate. Thanks to all of our vocal performers.
4: I'm Eric Nevins of Halfway There Podcast and Christian Podcasters Association. I'm E.T. Stevenson for Truce Podcast.
1: Thanks also to my good friend, Jackie Hart. God willing, we'll be back in two weeks to continue our exploration of the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States. I'm Chris Darren, and this is Truce. This episode
0: is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.